Welcome to Health Cetera's podcast. If you were seeking reliable scientific or medical information, where would you turn? According to a Pew Research Center study, about two-thirds of Americans might turn to social media. Couple that fact with the results of a study conducted by computer scientists at Columbia University. Well over half of social media users reshare links to scientific articles without reading them first. Social media platforms have become a breeding ground for scientific misinformation. On this podcast, Barbara Glickstein, Health Center correspondent and registered nurse, hosts Dr. Wanda Montalvo, Senior Fellow and Team Leader for Public Health Integration and Innovation at the National Association of Community Health Centers, for a conversation about unreliably sourced medical misinformation and the sources patients and providers should consider to keep themselves and others correctly informed. This podcast first aired on Health Cetera and the Catskills on WIOX Radio on May 31st, 2022. Quote, this is harming people, communities, families, and individuals. People are being victimized by disinformation and misinformation and paying a heavy toll when they decide not to get vaccinated. Sometimes it costs them their lives. This quote is from my guest, Health Center guest, Dr. Wanda Montalvo. She is with the National Association of Community Health Centers. She's a senior fellow there and team lead for the public health integration. She's a fellow of the American Academy of Nursing. We are colleagues and have known each other a while and it's really nice to be in conversation with you today, Dr. Montalvo. Thank you, thank you. And thank you for inviting me and um, providing access to a platform where we can hopefully reach more people. Um, I wanted to give a little bit of background of, of, on the National Association of Community Health Centers. We were founded in 1971 and our goal is to promote efficient, high quality, comprehensive care that is accessible, culturally competent, linguistically competent, um, for our communities and it's very patient-centered. I'm really proud to work with um, NAC and with federally qualified health centers and health centers across the country. I think we serve about 28 million people. It's amazing. But one of the key things that I love about working with health centers is that we have four key components. Um, health centers are located in high need areas. We are committed to comprehensive set of services. So patients come in, and I like to say across the lifespan from, you know, birth to um, adult aging and people with chronic conditions. We provide dental medical care across the country. If people that may be underinsured or uninsured um, and even insured, if they're interested in finding a federally qualified health center in their area, they can just go visit the NAC website, put in their zip code, and find um, a health center near them. And the other thing that's very unique about uh, health centers is that it's a patient majority governing board. So when we talk about being patient-centered, we you know model that in, in how we meet mission-driven goals for our communities. Um, can, you, can you stop for a moment and speak to that power of it being a patient majority board? It's not just words. That that actually is very powerful that I didn't know that. So can you tell the listeners, what does that mean? 
It's amazing. Um, it means that at least 51% of the, of the governing board of a federally qualified health center must be a patient of that health center. And it meets, it, they basically reflect the community in which that health center serves. And so they really have a say in some of the priorities set by the health center, uh, strategic goal planning, the type of services and needs that they feel are, you know, um, within that community. And they also bridge partnerships. I mean, they, they're a, a great deal of talent and insight. And NAC provides actually training for new um, governing board members so that they understand the role of, 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 of a health center and what it is to govern, uh, because not everyone knows exactly what that is when you serve on a board. So I, I love it. I think that it's really important to have that lived experience and that voice, um, you know, really inform strategies and vision for the health centers because they're, they're there. They're not going to, you know, drop in in a parachute and leave. That's the uniqueness of what we do is that we're committed to the people that we serve. And the high value of that is that we're trusted by the community. So that's why I really love the work that we've been doing around, you know, understanding COVID, understanding why people are still hesitant. Um, the confusion around this has been really insightful. Um, so, you know, I want to kind of jump into it and why this, this, this kind of topic has resonated with me early on around June, we started conducting interviews, um, listening, we're calling, we call them listening sessions to trying to get to like the, that the messaging matters, the listening matters. And we started with um, health centers across the country. We did about 18 sessions with patients that are served by the health center and about 17 plus sessions that included the staff that works at the health center. And I would say that initially when I stepped into the project, I was really trying to grapple with why was it that people were hesitant to getting vaccinated, right? Because we were, um, as someone who lives in New York, we have and receive a lot of public health information. And so I felt that everywhere across the country that it was equal, that it, people, no matter where they were, were receiving similar information. I quickly learned that that wasn't so. That depending upon what state you live, some patients literally didn't know there were three vaccines available. Um, there was a lot of harm being caused by the lack of information that was being provided or also the confusion. We're placing a big, I think, um, decision-making burden on people that are not necessarily well-informed about health in general. So overall, like health literacy, then you introduce the technologies on how to make an appointment, how to access this. Not everyone has, you know, access to those things. The other was the literacy level of some of the messages, and it wasn't multilingual. So again, we were missing big chunks of our population across the country. So when we started this in June, it was, you know, identifying what were the concerns. Um, and what I kind of came away with was that I was lucky that I lived in New York City. Uh, I visited Florida to help out my parents in the in the peak of of some of this, and having been in the state there was no real public health messaging going on. In New York, every hour you receive at least one or two messages, you know, about what COVID is, how to stay, you know, protected, 
um, the value of getting vaccinated. In other states, that information is not going out to people. They don't not even know. That. They don't even, in the state of Florida, they're not releasing data on the number of cases and the number <laughs> exactly. of deaths. Exactly. Uh, can, we, can we go back for a moment, um, Dr. Montalvo, to the kinds of questions you were asking patients and staff, if you can share just mm-hmm. a couple to get a sense of how you garnered this information of understanding that some that the misinformation was a lack of information and whether mm-hmm. it was completely unavailable or not appropriate for the population mm-hmm. that you were you were trying to find out how to help. So we started the conversation with um, basically inviting people to share with us how they maintained themselves healthy and safe during the, you know, um, pandemic. And most of them talked about wearing a mask and social distancing. They understood those two things, um, but not exactly in some ways that not just when you're, you know, in a meeting place, but why was important, you know, like what was the function? They didn't quite understand the airborne and how COVID spreads. Like that wasn't, but they understood that to stay safe, wash your hands, you know, distance and wear a mask. So then we asked them, so where is it that you look for information? And most people would say um, friends, family members, or then they started talking about Facebook. And let's talk, let's spend a minute talking about Facebook um, and the role of Facebook with dis- disinformation. Um, I know that uh, there was data that supports this finding that over 50% of people will reshare an article without even reading it. It's scary. Uh, definitely. What I found was that if certain information wasn't being made available, people were going to Facebook with family and friends. And so what you had was like almost like a game of telephone, that if one person posted um, information, they didn't know how to vet whether that was accurate information, what was the originating source, was it based on fact, and then just kind of repeat it. So it was almost like, you know, a forest fire, just kind of catching a rhythm and just being shared. The other that I found that was uh, disturbing was how influential that was. Well, my friend posted this. Um, The other was that depending upon the faith community where those people, where people lived, the messages were different. We had certain parts of the country where faith-based leaders were providing or helping to debunk some of the information that people were finding in Facebook. But we also found that certain areas of the country had leaders that were reinforcing that message, such as, you know, it, they're, they're tracking you, they're going to, you know, this injection is very big and it's going to have a chip in it. We had patients share with us where, you know, some leaders actually bought in and showed them what they thought was going to be the vaccine. So it was really, really um, hard to navigate that initially with the conversations And I think, I'm sorry, but I think that there was great harm caused by some of these bigger companies. And there needs to be some type of accountability to helping to vet and make sure that at least the information that is being pushed are the ones from accredited sources and not use the algorithms to target people to continue to feed this misinformation to them because they kind of, you know, 
maybe liked something that was conspiracy and now all of a sudden their their you know feed is consistently feeding the same message and that's a big component of what people did not understand so being able to speak to the patients and including health center staff that this is how some of these algorithms worked and helping to share with them how to check for resources I felt was really, really important. But I would say that this is the first time I ever felt so overwhelmed. Like I couldn't get above water. I felt like if we keep this up, all the hard work and all the strategy and everything that we're trying to disseminate, we're fighting against something else that's almost like an invisible war. And I couldn't, it was probably the first time I felt this way. And it was because of the interviews and speaking with patients and staff. You, you've mentioned um, in our discussion so far that there are a number of things people can do to vet that information. Um, and because there is so much uh, vaccine, COVID vaccine and COVID pandemic news, what, what kinds of simple steps would you recommend to the listeners about those sources? And mm-hmm. how do you um, distinguish between uh, evidence-based science, opinion, and and myths. And yeah. part of, after you answer that, we can talk about this is part of anti-vaccination uh, misinformation existed mm-hmm. way before COVID. It's mm-hmm. now a tsunami of disinformation yeah. and misinformation. So first, tell us, how can people look out for vaccine misinformation? What are the steps you recommend? First, I would look at where is the source being posted? I would look at who posted it. Is it an, a, a trusted source such as, for example, is it coming from the health center where I'm getting my care? Or is it you know, somebody's neighbor that's posting something? Um, so I would definitely want to make sure that people understand that information coming from our CDC, Center for Disease Control, information coming from our state public health departments uh, should be trusted information coming forth from your health center um, clinician and team are trusted sources. So let's just start with that. And then the other is that, you know, with the sharer, oftentimes they don't know that what they're sharing is misinformation. So um, it's like partner with me to help identify where is the original creator of this source. And so I think this is where the health center staff or clinicians and nurses really need to be alert what important role they play in helping to combat some of this. So looking at who, where is, is it an organization that's, you know, trusted? What's the date of this? Are they citing research that's vetted actual publications or is it a snippet from something that's outdated and, and, and in some ways really malicious to cause real harm, right? Like there's a real strategy behind it. Um, so those are some simple steps that people can do. But my first recommendation is to kind of go to a trusted source. So I found that was really interesting that um, when I asked people, would did you visit the Center for Disease Control website? And they would say, Oh no. So we would show them this is, this is what it is. This is the information that's up there. And they were like, Oh, this is good stuff. I didn't know this was available. So this is where I think nurses and health center 
staff or even just you know our 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 workforce in this in this arena play a really important role in helping our communities. I agree, and we also know that um, what science is is knowing. And as this pandemic, certainly in the early days, we could um, look back and and still be concerned that um, that it was through the air and not through contact, that mm-hmm. their masking wasn't important, it is important. Right. And we can point fingers, but we also know, um, you know, as nurses and having um, experience with understanding that as new information comes out, it changes what was said before. And mm-hmm. I think that plus people's own concerns has not um, helped with then believing now what we should be doing. Um, I think that's another been another problem. And certainly uh, I know a, I have a nurse colleague friend who's actually teaching people how to read scientific papers, simply helping them understand for themselves mm-hmm. what is epidemiology? What does it mean when these what does this data mean? And mm-hmm. it's not for everyone, but it could be right. for more of us. And yeah. certainly we've all become um, more informed, the general public has become more informed, and certainly, as you have stated more than once, Dr. Montavo, it's really important that you know where your source is from, um, right. its reliability, and whether or not um, it's good source information. So, um, one of the other things I wondered if you had in these conversations and in your work in this important wor- way is he- teaching people how do we evaluate risk. I've been thinking about this over the last couple of days as we now are in yet another surge uh, in our country and certainly in New York City. And a friend said to me, um, how are you evaluating, Barbara, the risk of doing an activity and the benefit? And, um, you know, I'm double uh, vaccinated and I have a booster. I'm going to be 68 years old. My health is good. But how do we do that? And how would you tell the listening audience to simply evaluate the risks involved uh, in, in, in terms of activities, exposure, what one should do. It's interesting. My perspective is how do I keep people around me safe first? That's kind of my lens as I think about risk. So my biggest concern is exposing someone else around me. So that's number one. Number two, I actually feel um, that the, some of the measures we have in New York City, I know that it's not popular, but I feel better knowing that if I go into a restaurant, everyone's going to have to show proof of vaccine. And I feel better as a really good, simple example. Uh, two weeks ago, went to the movie theater with my husband. Not only did I have to show the proof of vaccine, I had to show my ID to show to prove that that was me. And I was thankful <laughs> Uh, because I felt, you know, you're you're making an effort to keep us safe. I wear the mask. I don't take I don't take it off when I'm in public spaces, unless when I'm in a restaurant. And then even with that, I go when it's not really crowded. I look: is there good ventilation? And are they following protocol? But most of the time, I'm honestly I'm keeping um, to a smaller group. Uh, my daughter works in entertainment. She's a face painter, balloonist, and I know she's with the public often but she wears her mask and she's also vaccinated as well. But it's not, it's not everyone's following it. So I think for me, it's a personal responsibility to keep those around me safe, whether you're a stranger to me or not, it doesn't matter. I don't know if you're going home to an elderly parent who might be sick. I don't know if you're going home to a newborn baby. And I just think 
that it's important for me to play a role in keeping others safe. I think that's really good advice. Uh, people like you as a nurse, we often get phone calls from family and friends about the latest, what do you think, what do you, how would you advise me? And after I also go through that run of points, I then say, are you terribly anxious about attending that dinner party? Are you mm -hmm. very anxious about taking the subway um, mm -hmm. to an appointment? And if it's yes, then don't do it. Because yeah. I feel that our well-being and our mental health and our emotional ability around um, what feels like, and for some even more than others, of course, um, a stress level that is not worth taking that risk. I, agree. I, wanted, I wanted to ask you about... Um, a population of people we know across the country who are not yet vaccinated, and it has to do with not getting paid sick leave and concerns about um, taking a vaccination and not being able to go to work and not being paid, or even mm -hmm. maybe at the risk of being fired. Did mm -hmm. any of that come up in your interview conversations? Yes, it did. And so my counter is that if you do get sick, we don't know what your reaction will be. You're safer being vaccinated um, and being out for one day is less risky than being out for two weeks or a month or longer. I also talked, spoke with people and kind of shared what were some of the costs associated with one ICU stay um, and what's the overwhelming cost to the person's overall health. I, I, the risk of long-term impact of COVID is, uh, has a much more long-term negative impact on the quality of my life and cost of living and ability to earn a living as compared to taking the vaccine and following public health recommendations. And also, I think the other thing that people haven't spoken enough about is, and it's sad to say, the number of orphans that we have now that have lost both their parents and grandparents in our country where over 800,000 people have died. That's generations lost. And so being able to share this information with them, giving them data. So that was the other thing I found really useful was providing them information that they had not, had not been shared with them previously. And they really valued that. They valued the opportunity to be heard to create a safe space and to provide them with accurate information and then giving them time to make their own decision. But a big kind of benefit in the interviews that, that you know we conducted was that they were already attached to a health home. So they were patients in a health center. So there was a safety net for them to go back to and be able to you know access the vaccine um, once they made a decision to do that. And if they de decided not to, the recommendations on how to follow the public health guidelines and why it was important. So, you know, you make as many recommendations as possible, um, help people to feel like I'm on your side. My, my, my role here is to help you make an informed decision and to help, help you keep safe. But more importantly, in my mind, when I think about this and when I'm working with, with um, patients and staff is, I really care about the rest of your family and the next generation. And that's why we're so committed to this. 
Um, and there's really a lot of good information. I think people can go and find and learn more about this. So the um, Public Good Projects is a really good resource for people who want to know more about this and understand it better. I really love First Draft. I think they've done a really great job simple things to learn more about identifying misinformation, disinformation, how to equip yourself um, and advocate around that. And NAC also has been producing a lot of great um, webinars around this topic. And next month we have one for the care team as, you know, key stakeholders in helping to combat this. I do think that we need a lot more um, of our, you know, essential frontline workers to be aware that this is another invisible war that we're fighting. And so taking to social media and promoting accurate information, I do this all the time on Facebook. I'm constantly promoting accurate information to my friends and family, and I make it public so that it's shared broader than just me. I just feel a, a personal responsibility to do that. Were there any surprises beyond some that you've already stated in these interviews, either with patient population at the community health centers or staff? I think my biggest um, aha was that we cannot assume that um, even our staff are informed of the accurate information. That was a big key takeaway for me. So they also fell victim to the disinformation strategies that were being um, promoted. And also that depending on the state's um, you know, strategies around public health, it also impacted the way staff worked and, you know, executed their, their strategy to, they apply these strategies to themselves to keep them safe, whether to decide to get a vaccine or not. So that was really um, unexpected. I would say that was unexpected. The, the centers that did a really good job on, on promoting information was to use their clinicians to do in-service education for their staff, answer all their questions. Some health centers did town halls on Facebook and others did messaging that, you know, videos and things like that ran in the, in the waiting room. So people would, would hear accurate information from people they trusted. Those things really were very helpful. And also, you know, those centers that took to more proactive communication via their social media channels also help to reach the community with the right information. And those that were engaged in kind of coalition strategies with other partners, it was, you know, a multi-pronged effort to keep people safe. So those things worked, but it's, it's, it's not over. We need, we need more. Um, and there's certain states, unfortunately, that are not there yet. My guest is Dr. Wanda Montalvo. She is a senior fellow and the team lead for public health integration at the National Association of Community Health Centers. Look up your local community health center. If you're not attending your health care there, you might want to consider. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of Health Centera in the Catskills. For more podcasts and discussions of important health issues and policies affecting health, go to HealthCetera's website and blog at www.healthmediapolicy.com. That's www.healthmediapolicy.com. This podcast was produced by Diana Mason, Barbara Glickstein, and production assistant Kai Volsey.